Well, today we're beginning a brand new message series where we're going to be taking a look at some of the amazing things that a man named John saw Jesus do as he had an opportunity to journey with Jesus for three years. And where I'd like to to start today is with a a question that is really important for us to consider and to to ask ourselves and then to answer. It's this question, um, why did Jesus in the first place do miracles? Why, what was the reason for Jesus doing miracles? And as you sort of chew on that question for a moment, I want to share with you something um, from my childhood. You see, uh, when I was a kid, one of my all-time favorite gifts or toys that I had was a magic kit that was put together or made by Fisher Price. In fact, I went online. You can find, did you know this, anything online? And I I was actually able to find a picture of the exact magic kit that I had way back in the 80s. There was a magic wand that you could use to turn into a flower, uh, a a handkerchief that you could magically change the colors of, and then there was this magic box, and you could take a red ball and make the ball up here and disappear and move all around. And I spent a lot of time perfecting my craft of being an amazing magician. And now, for those of you who are younger than me and think, wow, you are like the biggest dork that ever lived, just understand that there was no cell phones, TikTok, YouTube, Candy Crush. Like, in the 80s, we were just looking for things to do, right? So... Magic, that was one of the things that I did. I remember gathering my parents around sometimes or having a magic show for the kids in the neighborhood, and it never went quite as well as I I thought it would. But the main reason I did this, the main thing I was giving to people uh, was entertainment. That's why I did what, what I did. Why did... Jesus do the amazing things that he did? Or to go back to the question I had on the screen before, why did Jesus do miracles? Was he just entertaining people? Was he just showing off? Was it just some random, unplanned acts of kindness that he did for people as he gave them their sight or helped them walk again? What was the reason that Jesus did his miracles? This is a really important question that we're going to answer before we get into the first miracle for today, and it's going to help you understand the flow of the entire book of John. So let me share with you a little bit of background. Some of you probably know this, but there are four accounts of Jesus' life that were written by four people that were either there when Jesus did these things or did some interviewing of people who were there. Those book names or letter names are called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, of those four, the one that was written, the absolute latest, actually by quite a bit, was the one we're going to be looking at. It was written by John and is called the Gospel of John. As best as we can tell, it was written when John was a very old man and was written probably around 85 to 90 
AD. So if you do a little bit of the math, because this, this helps, you begin to understand that this is about 55 to 60 years after Jesus died and rose again. 55 to 60 years after that happened. Many of us, probably even most of us online in this room, aren't even that old. So it, it's, it's a long time. And what started to happen is that people began 55 or 60 years after the resurrection, many of those people not having seen Jesus because they weren't born yet, something began to happen with people that John began to notice. That they had a hard time believing that a man who walked the earth was not just a man, but is actually God in the flesh. Now, let me ask this. It's kind of a rhetorical question. Can you understand why people might doubt the belief that a human being was God? I mean, if I told you that I was God, you'd think I'm crazy. If, if, I, if I told you that Matt was God, more of you would probably believe that, right? Uh, but it's not something that ever happened before. It's something that hasn't happened since. And it makes sense that people began to doubt that. Now, a little bit of a sidebar. I think it's good for us as Christians to just take a moment to consider, how should I feel when I have doubts about things that I've never seen before? Have you ever had doubts about your faith? Have you ever had doubts about some of the things in the Bible? I think the truth is, that we all have in one way or another. And so a couple things about doubts. First of all, doubts are understandable. If you're someone in the room or online and, and you're thinking, you know what? I can't really connect with a church until I get rid of all my doubts. That in order to be a member at a church or to be a Christian, it means that I'll never have doubts. You, you, have, you have the wrong impression. None of us, have perfect faith. I think over time, our faith can grow and get stronger, and we have less doubts. But I want you to know doubts are understandable. And then number two, that the church hasn't always done a great job at helping people with their doubts. It's kind of like a parent that, you know, their child asks them why, and their answer is just because, right? It's an, it's an answer, but it doesn't really help the child grow in understanding. I think sometimes maybe you've heard this response, maybe from a parent or a Sunday school teacher some time ago when you had a question about faith. If you were bold enough to even ask it, sometimes the answer is, you know what? You just got to believe. Just, you just got to believe harder. And there are some things in the Bible that that's true. For instance, I don't know that I will ever be able to fully grasp or understand how God is three people but one God and how the Trinity all works. That's just something that I just have to receive by faith. But on the flip side, when it comes to the most important question there is in your faith life, do you know what that question is? There is a question that is at the heart and core that 
this is the question that you need to wrestle to the ground and answer for yourself. And if you can answer this one with confidence, all of the other questions actually become a little bit smaller. The question that we need to wrestle to the ground is this, who is Jesus? Was he just a man and a rabbi and a good teacher, or was he God's son, and did he die and rise again? That's at the, the heart and the core, because as John writes, writes in John chapter 3, he writes, whoever believes in him will not perish. Who is Jesus is everything. And the cool thing is, that the gospel writers give us, that history gives us more than you just got to believe. But in fact, as John writes, he first of all, as he writes, acknowledges that it's hard to believe that a human being was God. Doesn't that almost just kind of make you feel a little bit better? If you have doubts, that the people who actually walked and lived with Jesus for three years, understood the doubts that there might be about acknowledging that it's a human being was God. And then it's not just John then saying, and you just got to believe. <laughs> but he goes on, and as he writes his book, he shares his journey. This man who walked with Jesus for three years acknowledges that it's hard to believe that a man was God, but he then shares how he got there, his journey, why he believed that Jesus was God. That's kind of the underlying premise of the entire gospel of John, is helping people who lived in a culture where they were beginning to doubt that a man was God. He shares with us, even 2,000 years later, his journey as to how and why he came to believe it. And so you may or may not have known this, but the Gospel of John is centered around seven miracles. Actually, if you count Easter Sunday, which was kind of a miracle, <laughs> kind of, there would be eight miracles, but seven miracles of Jesus that John chose to highlight that he saw with his own eyes. And I don't know about for you, but as I recognize that, as I, I see that, as I, I recognize that John and the disciples were just normal people, that they had their doubts just like you and me, it, it, it's helpful, it's comforting. And you know what helped them along the way? Seeing what Jesus did. They didn't start with just this rock-solid faith that would never waver. For those of you who know about the Gospels, you know that the disciples were up and down in their faith. One moment, Peter's confessing, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The next moment, Jesus has to tell him, get behind me, Satan, because <laughs> you don't have the things of God in mind, right? But their faith gradually began to grow and get stronger as they watched with their own eyes and saw what Jesus did. So, so John in his gospel, he kind of gives the, the thesis of the entire gospel right near the end. Here's what he writes about his gospel. 
He says, Jesus performed many other signs, we're going to come back to that word, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. The book not being the entire Bible, but in this book means the Gospel of John specifically that he's writing. But these signs, there's way more, but the ones I'm writing about, they're written, why? So that you might believe, that you might hear them, understand them, and come to believe the most important part of faith, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Because when you believe that, that by believing, you will have life in his name. The reason why Jesus did miracles, they were not just random acts of kindness that had no rhyme or reason to them, but he did them, John uses the word, as signs. Signs to point out to people who are around him that Jesus was not just a human being, but he is who God promised him to be and who he said he was, the Son of God. God himself, God in the flesh. So as we go through this series, number one fill-in, I think, is just kind of an, an underlying premise that we need to keep in mind. I hope that instead of becoming enamored with the miraculous, that we become enamored with the one to whom the miraculous points that we see through these miracles, we come to understand a little bit more about who Jesus is. We become to have a stronger, I guess, confidence that he is exactly who he said he was because these things were written by people who saw these miracles and then they were preserved for us for 2,000 years and we get to benefit from them today. So the first miracle that John records uh, is one that most of you probably will recognize. It's recorded in John chapter 2, and it's Jesus changing water into wine. Let me give you a little bit of context around this particular miracle. It's really early in Jesus' ministry. He's only about, um, he's 30 years old. He's only been preaching and teaching uh, publicly for about a week if you read in John chapter 1, you find out that Jesus has, to this point, called about five of his 12 disciples. And one of the first things they do as a group is go to a wedding that they were invited to in a, a little town in Galilee called Cana. Now, I haven't quite gotten there yet when it comes to the parental side of this, but I've heard, I've heard that weddings tend to be a big deal. They cause a little bit of stress and they, they cost, you know, just a little bit of money, uh, depending on what it all entails. And you might think that 2,000 years ago, weddings were not as big of a deal. And if you thought that, you'd be wrong. Because today, a typical wedding lasts an afternoon or a day. Uh, back then, a typical wedding lasted five to seven days. And the host family, get this, parents who've complained about weddings, the host family <laughs> was in charge of feeding and supplying drink for that family for all five to, to seven days. And so that was the situation, that was the type of wedding celebration that, um, that Jesus was attending. And, and here's what we read in John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. 
Jesus' mother, you know who that is, Mary, was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. So we're not exactly sure what Mary's role was at this wedding. Maybe they were related to the bride and groom, and so she was kind of helping out as a cousin or an aunt or something like that. Or, or maybe she just kind of she helped with weddings. We, we aren't quite sure. But Mary comes to Jesus with a problem. It's probably a problem even if it happened today. She came to Jesus and said, you know what? They've run out of wine. <laughs> They've run out of alcohol. Now, let me just talk about that for a moment. You, you do have to understand that the place of wine or alcohol was different 2,000 years ago than today. Um, today, alcohol is kind of like um, a recreational drink type of thing that uh, is meant at times to take the edge off. And honestly, oftentimes things are overdone when it comes to drinking too much. Um, when Mary comes to Jesus, she's not, you know what, Jesus, we're out of beer. You got to go get another keg for the party, you know? It wasn't that. Wine 2,000 years ago was more of a, a staple drink. And part of the reason is it was very hard to keep water clean and fruit juice would go bad very quickly. And so wine was a, more of a staple drink. This was a problem that they had run out of wine because it would cause lots of embarrassment um, for the host family in a much bigger way than if you ran out of alcohol today at a wedding. So Mary brings this to Jesus, and Jesus replies, Woman, and just pause. I highly discourage you of addressing your mom this way when she goes and uh, asks you to clean your room or something like that. Okay, woman. Uh, this wasn't Jesus being disrespectful, and don't try this at home. It was actually the opposite. Jesus could have addressed her in the English, I would say, mom, mother. But in public, you'd often use a, a word that showed a little bit more respect. Maybe on the, the guy side, it would be something like sir in the English. So Jesus is just using a public term of respect with his, with his mother. So woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And I think one of the things I want you to notice about Jesus here, this is how much into his ministry? One week. He's 30 years old. Three more years until he dies. And it may not jump out at you at first, but this phrase, my hour has not yet come, is a clear indication that Jesus has his mind and his heart on the bigger purpose for why he came. This, this term, the hour is used numerous times by John in his gospel. And every single time, it's a reference to the hour of Jesus' death. In fact, in John chapter 13, I think it's verse 1, it's the night before Jesus dies. You know what he says? He says, my hour is here. My hour has come. And so what Jesus is showing us is just like his streamlined focus on his purpose for being here. And essentially, he's saying this, I, Mary, Mom, I've come to save the world, not weddings. 
my bigger purpose here is to give people eternity, not more wine at the wedding. You might have some requests that you have been coming to God with or to Jesus with, and it seems as if he's kind of been a little bit silent, and maybe he's telling you today, maybe this is a good reminder for us that he's come to save the world, not our bank accounts. He's come to save the world, not to cure every disease this side of heaven. I've come to save the world, not wedding. I love his focus. We continue. His mom said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So there was something in Mary that just thought, you know, Jesus can do something about this, and he might. We'll come back to Mary a little bit. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So if you do the math there, six jars, 20 to 30 gallons, you know, approximately what, 150 gallons of water? Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted, here's the miracle, the water that had been turned into wine, 150 gallons of wine. And not only was it a lot, verse 10, he didn't realize that it had, where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Jesus came through not only providing a lot, but providing the best. And when you think about all the different miracles that Jesus could have chosen to sort of go public with him being the son of God. In some ways, it seems strange to me, at least, that he would pick this somewhat, you know, obscure wedding in a small town, changing water into wine? I mean, he could have raised the dead or had the paralyzed walk, and he would do those things later, but water into wine... I don't know exactly why Jesus chose this to be his first miracle. But in it, there is something that I learned this week, or at least was reminded of. It's our second fill-in for today. That Jesus cares about the ordinary circumstances of your life. It, it was in many ways, I know for that bride and groom, not so ordinary. This was their wedding. But when you think about the grand scheme of life, kind of an ordinary thing. A wedding ran out of wine. And yet Jesus cared and did something about it. And Jesus cares about the ordinary circumstances of your life as well. And, and there's something about that that definitely boggles my mind because, again, when you think about why Jesus had come to earth, well, 
there is this singular focus we talked about before on everything leading to the cross and him experiencing hell. In fact, here's what Jesus says about his purpose as uh, Matthew records it. Jesus says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Can you imagine being born and knowing that your life will end at some point in the most horrifically brutal and painful way that it could? That's what Jesus lived with every single day of his life, knowing that someday, someday he would suffer hell and being forsook by God to be the perfect substitute, as it says, a ransom for the world, for all of our sins, for every hurtful word, hateful thought, self-centered decision, for every time where we've decided, you know what, my path for my life and what I want to do, man, it looks so much better than and easier than what you want me to do. I think I'm going to choose my... For all of those things, that's why Jesus came. So that we can sit here today, we can gather together, and not be worried about our future, guys. But instead, every week we gather, every day of your life, really, but every week we gather here can be a celebration because of Jesus' singular focus on being the ransom. That's why he came. And I have to imagine, we know it to be true, that his heart and his mind was focused on that. And I wonder for you, have you ever been, here's a question, have you ever been, what's the next slide? Oh. Um, Have you ever been so focused on something that it's made you hard to, made it hard to concentrate on something else? For me, as I was thinking about situations like that, I thought back to eighth grade. And if some of you grew up in church, maybe you can kind of uh, relate to this experience. So in the church I grew up at, is a really big church, uh, we had something called um, confirmation examination. And this was done publicly. So basically, we'd all sit up in front of the people at church, you know, five, 600 people at the church I grew up at, and then the pastor would just pepper you with questions about God and the Bible, and you just kind of had to sit up there not knowing what he was going to ask and hoping you get the right answer and not look, you know, like you didn't know anything. On top of that, the pastor who was throwing the questions at us was actually my dad. Um, so, so there's an extra layer of intimidation and of wanting to get everything right. And I remember, even as I looked forward to confirmation, um, I was devastatedly fearful of the entire thing. And for a month at least, it's really all that I could think about and concentrate on. I know I was a bear to, to live with because I was just focused on this thing. And, and maybe you have found that to be true in your life. Maybe it was studying for the bar exam or maybe some big you know, project at work or something. Sometimes when we have fo- singular focus on something, it's hard to be engaged with the details around us. And the thing about Jesus is that he cares about your eternity in the future and he also cares about your life right now. 
I want you to just celebrate that today, that he's taking care of your future in heaven, but he also cares about how you're feeling today. And whether it's tears or joy, whether it's fear or whether it's anger, whatever it is, he cares. And as we close, I, I, love, I love how Mary reacted to a problem she had in her life. The problem was, we're out of wine. And what does Mary do? She doesn't try to quick run down to the grocery store or start, you know, making wine. I mean, obviously that wouldn't work. She simply does this. She turns to Jesus. And I think Mary is a perfect example of someone who would know what to do when Jesus is around. Because think about this. This side of heaven, there was not a person in the world who knew Jesus better than his mother. Knew his personality. Knew how he reacted in stressful times. Knew his heart. He, she knew her son. And in the moment of need, I think it's so telling that the mother of Jesus immediately turned to him. I'll say it this way. Mary didn't know what to do, but she knew where to turn. Here's the question for you. Where do you turn when feeling low? They were low on wine. Mary knew where to turn. Where do you turn when feeling low? If we had to be honest, so often it's not Jesus first. We're feeling low on love. We turn to our spouse and blame them for not loving us enough. We're feeling low on purpose. We work harder at our career because we think that in some way, by reaching a certain level, we're going to feel more purpose. We feel low on confidence especially with all the things that continue to go on in this world. And we just try to control as much as we can. It doesn't work. It never does. What do you think Mary would tell you to do? The son of the Savior, number three. It's like Jesus is there. Go to him in prayer. That's what she'd tell you. Bring it to Jesus. See, so often our, our prayer lives well, I don't want to speak for yourself, but I, for you, but I think maybe you can relate, becomes a little bit of a last resort rather than the way we act and react whenever there is something going on in our life. Um, I, I love how Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, he says, don't be anxious about anything. And then he quickly relates it to a regular and consistent prayer life, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Where are you going to turn when you're feeling low? Mary would say, turn to my son. Turn to Jesus. He may not give you the miracle you're asking for, but he will give you exactly what you need. 
So how does this whole section end? Verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. The disciples grew in their belief and faith in him as they saw what Jesus did and it proved who he was. It wasn't, you know what, disciples, you just gotta believe. But they were able to see. And that grew their confidence. And so John, almost headed to heaven, the end of his life, all of his friends are dead, Peter, James. Christians are being persecuted. The culture at the time is beginning to doubt whether Jesus actually was the Son of God. And as John decides, how am I going to write this book? How am I going to explain who Jesus is? He says, I'm going to write about Jesus' miracles. These were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. We'll pick it up there next week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, and we thank you for preserving your word through the centuries, that although we are not eyewitnesses of Jesus' miracles, that people like John and Matthew, who were, their words have been preserved for 2,000 years, and we get to benefit from them today. Lord, I pray that for any of us who, who might have come here today with some doubts, that through um, your Holy Spirit, that those doubts become smaller and that our faith becomes stronger. We pray this uh, blessing not only for today, but for this entire series. In Jesus' name, amen.